Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. One of the reasons I love being a journalist was I really admire people who see the world with clarity and conviction. Today's guest is one of those people. Teela Reid is a senior solicitor practicing in Aboriginal land rights litigation and is also the current practitioner in residence at the Sydney Law School. She's a central campaigner for the Uluru Statement from the Heart and the host of the Black Matters podcast. She's also co-founder of Black Fella Book Club. In this episode, we talk about what the word leadership means to a First Nations woman, facing your fears, managing conflict, and Teela's superpower. Teela Reid, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Now, many people know about your advocacy, but I'd like to know a little bit more about where you started in life and how you became a lawyer. Yeah, look, I'm a proud Wiradjuri and Wailwan woman. I was born and raised in my little hometown in central western New South Wales. And, um, you know, having both my maternal and paternal sides of my family being forced onto missionaries in western New South Wales on my traditional country, it really makes me as the eldest daughter, granddaughter in my kinship, kind of the first generation to have the opportunity to be both born and raised in a township with you know, access to formal education as a result of the hard work of my ancestors and their advocacy and activism. So I come from a long line of strong matriarchs, strong Black women, very much grew up in a matriarchal kinship family where, you know, Women are healers, storytellers, they're the carers for our children and yeah, have kind of always been very close to my home country, only really left actually to to study and to go to university. I was actually a teacher before I was a lawyer, having been a very competitive sports person growing up in my little town. Sport was just something I loved to do. And I think that probably harnessed my competitive streak. And it kind of was a natural transition for me to go on and be a high school PE teacher. And I really loved that job and having kind of a very strong awareness of the health issues in my family and my kinship. That job also gave me a really kind of critical insight into health and wellness and holistic well-being. Um, You know, I'm the only person in my entire kinship that doesn't have a form of diabetes. My mom unfortunately passed at 47 with type 1 diabetes. Most people within my kinship 
um, have a form of type 2 diabetes. And so my health has always been a huge priority to me, both mental and physical health. And, you know, I was raised in a very kind of land rights advocacy activism family and advocacy and activism has always been a part of me. Being the eldest granddaughter, I was always marched off to meetings with elders. Um, You know, that was my introduction to black politic since I was knee high to a grasshopper. And that sense of responsibility to continue that legacy of raising awareness of our issues and, you know, the fight for our rights has really kind of, I just see lawyering as an extension of that. I do find it fascinating how many First Nations leaders are women uh, who have similar stories about being raised in an activist environment. When was the last time you got home and what is the little town that you grew up in? Uh, so the last time I was home was really only a couple of months ago because my elders are getting very old now and it's a little town in central western New South Wales called Gilgandra and, you know, it was a great upbringing in my reflection. It was kind of, I was very sheltered from the world's issues. I hadn't really left my community until I was, you know, in my mid-teens. Um, I remember my, you know, going to Dubbo, for example, was like, whoa, that's such a big town. How do, how am I ever going to know my way around that? Because you'd have to go there to do like, the grocery shopping. So, yeah, um, that's where my blood runs deep, out in Wiradjuri and Wailwan country. Yeah, I come from a little country town in South Australia, so I'm always interested because I had exactly the same reaction when I went to Sydney as a <laughs> as a 20-year-old, you know. I was the first time I'd been to Sydney and going to Canberra was big for me, but we'll come to Canberra because I'm pretty sure you spent a bit of time there. Um, this podcast is about leadership and I'm really keen to know from you whether you think you were a natural leader given that upbringing. Uh, and so leadership was something that you just found yourself accepting or did you have to work at it? Look, I see myself as someone who stands on the shoulders of giants and incredible giants in my kinship. There's a long legacy there. I think, you know, there is a difference between how Western society labels leaders and how we see authority and leadership within our own communities. I. I don't know. I think the more I have understood my obligations as a First Nations woman and how strong and proud I am grounded in that identity allows me, I think, to speak in certain contexts with that fact that I know who I am and where I come from and other people's opinions of me, you know, they're just noise at the end of the day, given that I have this long legacy of being connected to my people and my place. You know, some First Nations communities have, or people have a very different story of disconnection and as a result of the legacy, I think, of colonisation and invasion in Australia. I don't see myself personally as a leader. It actually, you know, especially with this movement at the moment, Of course, people are looking up to the things I say and the things I do. And I'm very conscious that when I have these conversations, that 
it isn't about me. It's about the collective will of my people and our collective struggle. And sometimes that might look like there is a diversity of opinion, but that is our strength as First Nations peoples. You know, in Australia, we've had this also, I think, pattern of political leaders or people in power labelling who is an Indigenous leader. And I don't think that that has served our communities very well in the sense that, you know, each and every community has their own systems of authority and governance, and I can only speak on behalf of my own story. So, um, you know, when it comes to kind of this notion of leadership, it's very much, I think, grounded in the stories that were passed down to me and then understanding my sense of obligation in this place and in this struggle and where we're at. I certainly don't think that I speak on behalf of other First Nations peoples, but it comes from, yeah, that real inner strength of of having kind of that inner understanding and deep roots in who I am as a First Nations woman. Yeah, this concept of leadership that this podcast is based on is challenged every time I talk to a First Nations woman. We don't talk about it in the way that you do. And I find that utterly fascinating. So is it worth you elaborating for a minute on how leadership works in your family and community? Well, I think it can look differently depending on the context. You know, when I go home, I mean, I'm just Taylor. Uh, I'm not a lawyer. I'm, you know, not someone who's gone and got multiple uni degrees. I'm someone who is part of a bigger kinship. You know, leadership doesn't come from the fact I'm a lawyer. It doesn't come from the fact that I hold certain roles. And I think Western society tends to do that. You know, if you're an elected politician, you're a leader. If you're the CEO of a company, you're a leader. But those things are just labels. At the end of the day, who are we really? And how uh, does that relate to other people? Because for us as well, the things we do in this world, you know, don't fit nicely into a nine to five job. To us, our lived experiences are ongoing. And I think every single First Nations person who knows their place and their community and their kinship understands that deep responsibility irrespective of the roles Western society places on us, that there is a deeper layer of really sharing with the world our sense of belonging to, you know, the most ancient cultures on the planet. And I just think that's such a strength and such a gift. And even when I think about, you know, the the national conversation at the moment with the voice and... Um, kind of helping our communities navigate this quite difficult conversation. I think even some of the leaders, you know, that are portrayed in the media or, you know, by virtue of their role as a politician or not, often the debate is distilled down into our disadvantages. You know, we have to close the gap. We have to do this. We, in for it to be worthy to be part of our society, it ha- it must, you know, we must step up to the plate. When in fact, I like to think about the fact that we are worthy of a voice in this place, whether or not we are capable of fixing colonization problems. We have been here since the first sunrise 
and we will be here to the last sunset. And that value doesn't come from a referendum. It comes from knowing who we are as First Nations peoples. And that what that's what drives me. That's what makes me really proud to be a Wiradjuri and Wailwan woman. As one of the strongest voices in the country, and you've just demonstrated why, what does that feel like every day when you have to get up, read the press, look at your social media, everybody else's social media? Like, how are you feeling day to day at the moment? Look, day to day at the moment, I'm definitely a person that thrives on routine. I'm a very structured person. Um, I really am very disciplined in how I start my day, how I end my day. And silence is such a very big part of sitting with trying to filter through for me the noise that we are experiencing at the moment. So how I'm feeling day to day, look, it's really about getting through my own routine, understanding what my tasks are, particularly leading up to the referendum. I've been having lots of conversations with younger generations about the fact that the outcome of a referendum is not determinative of how valuable we are as First Nations peoples. The outcome of a referendum is reflective of the state of non-Indigenous Australia. And that is on non-Indigenous Australia to really step up to the responsibility of what next for our nation. Either way, because it comes down to, uh, you know, what the public vote is in that sense. But, you know, whether it's yes or whether it's no, I've absolutely been making sure that um, our children understand who they are, where they come from, and that they have such an inner strength that it will not change either way if they know their stories, especially kids in my kinship, that they are strong First Nations peoples either way. And, you know, like the conversations that were passed down to me as a kid, you know, I, I'm I'm a millennial, so I you know got the whole. I feel like I've been raised in the reconciliation era, um, <laughs> you know, and that hasn't always been. I think, you know, look at if we look at the statistics now, it hasn't always been beneficial to First Nations peoples. Indeed, the statistics are getting worse for us over time. While there has been symbolic and practical steps taken forward, you really have to ask uh, ourselves as a nation, how did we go from, you know, nearly 250,000 people walking in solidarity across the Harbour Bridge together to celebrate reconciliation to where we're at now with this vitriol and I think deep underbelly of racism in our nation? And I think we have to start asking ourselves, how do we heal from this? How do we make sure that the lessons we learn in the conversations we're having now about the state of our nation, the history and contributions of First Nations peoples, and how do we grow from that either side of a referendum, yes or no, in order to, I think, really heal what we we need to heal as a nation. And that's some very, I think, deep, 
wounds of our past. And I think on the other side of healing is hope and opportunity. And so I do like to think about the prospects of what could be, you know, for our nation. And I think it's just so important that we make sure where if we are kind of engaging in these conversations that we're not forgetting about the day-to-day things that need to happen in our communities in order to continue to grow. I want to get a bit more practical then, bearing everything in mind that you just said, because I, I completely agree. I think this is just the beginning of something, yes or no. Um, and let's hope that that something is positive. But I'm interested in in the current environment or even just in your life generally, when you're moving around, delivering speeches and you've delivered some extraordinary speeches that I've heard, um, particularly to the FW community, how you manage that conflict, that feeling of conflict on the ground on a day-to-day basis, given it can be so emotions, it can be such an emotional load to carry uh, every day. What do you do to when you're in a situation where someone says something that you're just like, man, am I still hearing this stuff? What's your way of dealing with conflict on any issue, I guess, to be fair? Look, I think that, again, that I don't embark on the conversations seeing conflict. I embark on these kinds of conversations or keynote speeches or opportunities to write as a chance to listen, learn and grow. And, you know, I guess as well, having, you know, a teaching degree, a law degree, being to Harvard, things like that, it helps you, I think, critically think and analyse about what you need to, one, prepare and execute. And so much of that does come down to, you know, if I'm in a courtroom or if I'm at a lectern for a speech, for me, it's about the preparation I put in beforehand. And, you know, I do mentally prepare. I obviously read my notes. I am not the kind of speaker that he kind of kind of gets up and speaks off the cuff. Um, I am someone who genuinely, if I'm invited to speak, to a space, I show up with my full self and that um, I'm prepared for what I think could also be um, not just the positive outcomes, but the negative outcomes. And if there are certain conversations that kind of raise reactions, then I see them still as an opportunity to grow. You know, it's something I've had, you know, conversations, for example, with Stan Grant about who I love and adore and he, um, you know, is part of my bigger kinship. And it's like, you know, this is not about drawing battle lines. This is about where we can build bridges. And for me, that is really a lot about how I prepare, execute my, my public work. Do you ever go into these situations fearful? Like you do, you sound like Uh, And you've given great explanations to my questions around the strength and where you draw your strength from. But I'm wondering whether there's any more, any, you ever feel that sense of fear about being out there on a limb, you know, confronting a bunch of people about stuff that they don't really want to be confronted about, right? That's the, that's for me, a lot of what's going on right now is people just don't really want to have the conversation or know about it. 
Well, I think when it comes to the the context of the way in which we, um, you know, myself personally engages, it's also about the fact that as First Nations peoples, we have survived so much that I'm actually in a very privileged position in comparison. And I recognize that. I recognize that I had so many opportunities as a result of those giants whose shoulders I stand on. And nothing in Australia for First Nations peoples has ever been handed on a silver platter. Every inch, every single bit of progress we have made, we have fought for. And we have done that through the love and care of our kinships and along the way, you know, um, good allies who are willing to step up to the plate and question their own privilege. Look, I I don't like, I don't, you know, live in fear. I know that um, who I am, where I come from, and each of us has a story and a path that we are obliged to live. And I think, you know, if you ever kind of feel like if I ever kind of feel like, okay, I'm, you know, uncertain about something. My grandfather used to always tell me, you know, it's about following your instincts. It's about, you know, not always on, you know, you can't really logically reason sometimes with things. But for us as Black followers, there is such a strong internal tug of instinct that I know genuinely guides me in my life. And that was instilled for me from a very, very early age. You know, we speak about Yinjimara or Yinjimara Wanangana, the wisdom to live with respect in a world worth living in. And I certainly strive to create a world that is respectful. And while it can be challenging at times where certainly, you know, the mainstream and the media generally we know in Australia has not always been kind um, when it comes to First Nations stories or uh, telling the truth of uh, our experiences that at the end of the day, if I've stepped up to the plate and I feel like I have been able to do my story, my family, my kinship proud, then that's all. I can ask of myself, really. Yeah, I'm not going to let fear kind of stop the fact that I love who I am, where I come from and what I care for. If there was one thing that you wish Australians could understand about First Nations peoples, what would it be? I think there really needs to be a better understanding about the strengths within First Nations communities. We hear so much in the media and even through our mainstream politics about, you know, the disadvantages. And for First Nations peoples, we know the incredible strengths um, of what it means to have a long history and connection to this place. And I think that if people can dig below the very surface level conversations we have in this country when it comes to politics and, you know, it it is a game of politics of fear here in this nation. And unfortunately, First Nations issues have always been a political football. 
um, I encourage Australians to really dig deeper and below the surface of that politics of fear because genuinely there is so many strengths and opportunities to learn about what it means to really belong here. And I don't think that we've really scraped the surface of that yet. You know, so many Australians, it seems, have still not met or had a friendship or a connection with a First Nations person. There's clearly a long way to go in rebuilding our relationships. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, to critically think about what people are reading and absorbing on media and social media because I think below that surface is such a deep history here that is honestly so full of love and so full of respect and that we, um, you know, there's a chance to learn so much from First Nations communities. And if you need to, if you, need to you can come over to Black Fella Book Club. Yes. And... Find a book. <laughs> Find some great books. Um, we'll come back to that. But I just wanted to say to you that I've been covering um, First Nations of Aboriginal Affairs, was what it was called when I was um, in my 20s as a journalist. And I did covered it for News Corp out of Canberra. And, um, you know, the, and I'm reminded every time I'm doing an interview like this in this podcast at the moment of the matriarchy and the strength of First Nations women. And you, kicked it off straight away. First question, you immediately talked about it. And I feel like if the one thing I would want to impart to um, anyone listening to our discussion today is to better understand the, the, the circle of female love and friendship that exists. And you said your mother passed away at 46, but I assume you were surrounded by that, what I would call sort of feminist matriarchal power, but interested to hear a bit more about it from you. Yeah, you know, like in different kinships, I guess you'll hear different titters or genders or yogas, what we all like to call each other, or kudgeries, you know, sisters talk about their kinships very differently. But, you know, like my mum's sisters are equal to my mum in my kinship, so they helped raise me. Um, and I think that's the beautiful thing. Everything's very circular in our kinships, it's not a hierarchy like the patriarchy. And even though we talk about the matriarchy, it still means that men and women have equal value. It's just that often it is women within a matriarchal kinship that are the decision makers. And so, yeah, I mean, there's so much to learn there, I think, because it's no surprise then when you think about the history and the establishment of Australia and its colonies that it has been, you know, subsequently the aftermath of the patriarchy has meant that there has been systemic attempts to silence Black women. You know, it is First Nations women who are the highest incarcerated on this continent. That is unacceptable. And, you know, when you think about those different systems of governance, I think you can start to as well unpack your own privileges. And I do hope, you know, I've written about it before. I do hope that white women can really begin to reflect on how their values and when it comes to their notions of feminism actually are still at odds with something like the black matriarchy. And I think there's still a distance to go there to understand what it means within the matriarchal context for 
sovereign black women to coexist in kinship circles. And for us, it's not about, you know, breaking through glass ceilings or climbing a corporate ladder to prove ourselves. It's very much about how do we maintain those circles and kinships of love in order for our people to thrive and survive. And when you think about, you know, something like the stolen generations or the history of dispossession and the way in which, you know, white law that has been imposed by patriarchal systems, it was an attempt to disconnect women from their children. In fact, to disconnect the matriarchy from the next generation. And we have to start to think about Australia and our history as basically trying to destroy something like the matriarchy. But I don't think, if you were to talk to any First Nations woman, I think on this continent, indeed you have, they will speak extraordinarily highly about the fight and the love and the enduring care that First Nations women have for uh, for the next generation and our men. And we see our struggle as equal to men and not against them. And thank you for sharing that. I do think that's super valuable and you are amazing at putting words together. Um, what sort of leader are you? What, what sort of skills do you bring to leadership, do you think? Um, without dissing the word leadership, <laughs> um, I do like to think that, you know, I bring a sense of authority and stability and really grounded in the fact that it's a fantastic thing to be a First Nations woman. You know, it is such a privilege to be a First Nations woman. For so long, society has told us we are not worthy. You know, we be, we, we sit at the bottom of the hierarchy. And for me, it's about, you know, bringing to conversations the value that ought to be placed on First Nations women. And that means also, you know, when I look at the little black girls in my kinship, I'm like, I don't want them growing up kind of in the world I grew up with wanting to be, you know, Barbie or wanting to, you know, think that they have to get a corporate. Well, the corporate jobs are available and absolutely a possibility that doesn't place value on who they are. And just firstly, before they do decide that, having, I think, a strong sense of who you are um, does help you navigate those spaces in the end. You know, I feel like sometimes I just my presence in room sometimes can put white men off. And I, <laughs> and you don't even have to say anything. And it's just like, there is such a sense of feeling that this country has been built on the fact that we don't belong in some rooms. And when we do show up, with our full selves, with that pride. When the matriarchy rocks up into patriarchal rooms, I tell you, it can be such a threat to it, but I think there is so much beauty um, to embrace in the fact that all of these voices as well, um, including women, and I think white women have a lesson to learn as well in these settings from black women. So, yeah, it's just about embracing the beauty of being a First Nations woman is I what I hope, you know, and we don't have to change. Yeah, well, what do you do in that circumstance? Because I think most white women would tell you that, you know, we try to make ourselves small and try to make ourselves likable and hope that the bloke, you know, feels more comfortable. What do you do in that circumstance? 
those circumstances can still be very challenging. But I think what I do is that I'm prepared to not be silent, even in difficult situations, even if that means that I know someone else is going to be very uncomfortable with what I say. And I think that, you know, um, for us for so long, our voices have been silenced, particularly Black women. And so even if my voice shakes in rooms that are dominated by the white patriarchy, I know that it is still a privilege to speak and speaking can be such, I think, an empowering thing in contexts where we were never supposed to be. Tell us about your book club and what book we should be reading. I uh, co-founded at Blackfellow Book Club with my tida, Verinda Dutton. She's also a Gumbanyi and Barkinji lawyer. We have so many cool books up on that page. We also have an in real life space. And um, the book club is, I honestly think, you know, it has been non-Indigenous Australians who feel so deprived of the truth of our history that have really embraced the fact that they can come to a book club like at Black Collar Book Club and learn in their own time and find resources for themselves or their children um, and that it has been a community space where everyone from every walk of life ha- feels so welcomed and we love to promote the fact that our First Nations ancestors are the original storytellers. And for us, our stories aren't always in books. We are very much an oral storytelling culture. And that's what we love to embrace at Blackfellow Book Club. I'm reading a series of books at the moment. One in that series is called Law by, and it's written by Marcia Langdon actually, is about really tapping into this ancient jurisprudence of law that has always existed, you know, the law of the land. And, um, I mean, these are stories that often get passed down to us in our kinships around a campfire, but you can witness them through ceremony or, you know, where other people or other kinships or communities like to share their law through art, dance, Yeah, so it's just a different way, I think, of opening up my mind and I think really embracing that strength of what I spoke about earlier, which was I very much have a drive of hoping that we get to the point where we don't just see First Nations issues through a deficit lens, but we can really begin to deeply understand this ancient jurisprudence that has always existed in the law of the land since the first sunrise. So, yeah, come over and check out our options at Blackfellow Book. Well, I, you know, the the famous First Nations authors, you know, are all outstanding in this country. So, and I'm sure there's a whole bunch that we haven't even yet discovered yet. Every time we have an event with a all First Nations panel, I'm stunned by the quality of storytelling uh, just with a microphone. Um, can you do you honestly see yourself being the advocate and the activist that you are now? Uh, for the rest of your career? Or is there, a, is there a possibility that in the future you're going to go, nah, I'm done and I, I can't continue this? Or are you, are you in this for life? Because I, I, I just can see decades of this in front of you when you mentioned Marcia Langdon and I just look at you in immense admiration for your capacity to have these conversations. I guess another way of asking it is, 
is there a sunset clause on what you're doing? Or are you in this for, for as long as it takes? Well, I guess that really depends on my ancestors. Yeah, I feel like they're really guiding this. Um, even in my legal career, I've never really been like going to set the vision to kind of be a barrister or be a judge, but it's just more about what do I feel compelled to execute my skill set and where do I compelled feel compelled to tell a story? And I do I genuinely believe that that comes from a deeper level of guidance that, you know, is very, I think, connected to understanding this kind of spiritual connection that we have to our ancestors that I don't think that, you know, even when I talk to my non-Indigenous friends, it's not what drives them, Um, you know, the paycheck or the bank balance or the dream to own a home can drive people. But that is not what drives me. So I guess, you know, the future of Taylor Reid and what she does and, uh, you know, I feel like I'm a vehicle really for um, stories that are to be told. And when I do feel like it's my, my time to step up to the plate, then I know that there is a greater pull there to do it. What techniques do you have to tap into that direction? You said you're very disciplined about how you spend your day. So I'm assuming you have a space in your life to be able to hear your ancestors or feel your ancestors. Am I right in assuming that? So for me, it's very much, it's something that really has been, I think, passed down from my grandmother. You know, she is... She's a medicine woman. She knows where to get all of that bush medicine from. I remember being a kid and it was never really a chemist for us. We would have all these bush medicines and either we would jump into the bath with them or she'd boil them or we'd have them on ointments. And she's just a very kind of um, very spiritual woman. And she's still actually here with us. And I think one of the very great things I have learned from her in life, it's that you don't always have to fill the silence with noise or with words or with music. That actually, if you're able to embrace that deep listening and to kind of the place we are at, then our ancestors come through in those moments. And yeah, so I'm, I'm very dis- disciplined. I can be very solitary. I read a lot. Um, but at the same time, I, yeah, I have a lot of fun and it's just about balancing life and, um, and as well, creating space to reflect and then execute what I've learned and what I feel. Do you have a superpower? I genuinely do not think that. <laughs> Can I'm I tell you what your superpower is? If you don't know, I'm going to tell you. What is that? The ability to tell a story and communicate. Thank you. You are exceptional at, as exceptional advocate, an exceptional interview. Uh, you're a great talent. I'll tell you my superpower what? is I think re- it's repelling um, really insecure men. <laughs> I, did, I did. I did pick that up in that earlier in that earlier remark. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Look, just saying. I think that's actually quite relatable across cultures for millennial <laughs> women who are, yeah, 
you know, I think know what we deserve. And yeah, look, let's just say that part of life has been very interesting, especially when you very much know yourself, you start to kind of realize not many other people do. I'm just going to tell you... I'm just going to tell you, you've got cheers from the production team here, who I think are millennial women. Um, Fabulous to talk to you. Um, Best of luck over the next few weeks. And um, we're all thinking of everyone in First Nations Australia in the next few weeks. And um, uh, what resonated deeply with me was that, you know, regardless of what happens, there's a whole bunch of things that no one can take away from you. So thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you for your allyship. And, you know, either side of October 14, there's still some work to do. So thank you for having me. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell. And audio imaging by Nat Marshall. 